You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Well, you've noticed, uh, if you've been tracking with us, we have, we were, I said a week ago, we're back into our study in Philippians, but you notice I asked you to turn you to, turn to somewhere in the Bible, not Philippians. And the reason is, is because the elders uh, have asked me to preach on a particular topic this morning that, that we feel needs to be addressed. So Lord willing, we'll return to Philippians later. Uh, but this morning, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 5, and the title of my sermon is this, Church Discipline. Because sometimes love must be tough. I'm going to read to you what is a a clear biblical account of Paul calling on a church to exercise discipline. Some of you hear that and you think, what what is that? That doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound very nice. Maybe you hear that and you think it doesn't even sound very Christian. Well, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, we'll read the text and see what it is we're talking about, and then we'll exposit it together and try to make some application. 1 Corinthians 5, beginning at verse 1. Here's what Paul said to the church at Corinth. He said, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, his stepmother. And all God's people said, Ugh! Verse 2, and you, talking to the church, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, Paul talking about himself, for though absent in body, I'm not there with you, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. In other words, it's wrong. That's the judgment. So verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, in other words, I'm giving you instruction now. So what I'm going to tell you to do, you know I'm with you in this, even if I'm not physically there. So when you come together, so this Sunday, my spirit is with you. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord, verse 4, the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, Whatever that means about Satan and the destructions of flesh, whatever that means, we can recognize at the end of the verse sounds really good, like something we would want. Saved. Saved. That a spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You're boasting, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. As you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In other words, Jesus has died for you. He's making a reference here, an Old Testament reference, to the Passover celebration. In Passover, he celebrated 
Egypt, God rescuing Israel out of Egypt. And you recall that part of the, if you know your Old Testament well, you know that Israel was called to, to participate in a festival of the unleavened bread, remembering God's rescue of the nation out of Egypt. So they use unleavened bread. This is the imagery that Paul is using here. So verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival. So he's making an analogy here. Let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. So now we see what he means by leaven. What are you talking about leaven? I know how to eat bread. I don't know anything about bacon bread. Leaven. Okay, so he's talking about malice, evil. He's talking about sin. Like leaven is a picture of sin. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, holiness. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with, the sexually, with sexually immoral people. So Paul apparently has written previously and he's addressed sexual immorality. And he said, he said, don't associate with sexually immoral people. But now he's clarifying. Notice verse 10. Not meaning, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or, or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters since you would need to go out of the world. Right? If, if what I meant for you was don't hang around with sinful people, you, there, there'd be nowhere to go because everywhere you go, there'd be sinful people, including you. But now I'm writing, verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. In other words, they call themselves a Christian. Oh, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. I go to Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. He says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, obviously, Paul doesn't mean uh, people who've ever done this in their lives. He means people who are doing this and are continuing on. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. God help me to teach truth that in some ways is hard to teach, but it comes from you, so therefore it's good to teach. And it's good for us to know I pray, Lord, that you would do good in this hour as we worship over your word. Give us ears to hear. Give us courage to act. Give us hearts that are broken for the lost and wandering. And make us a church, O God, that is real, authentic. God forbid that we'd ever be faking it that we'd ever be ignoring things we need to be attending to. But make us a people set wholly apart unto you for your glory. And I pray that this sermon today would be a tool in your hands of doing that for us. Give us understanding, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jules Jephthah Robertson, better known as Jep Robertson, the son of Phil and Kay Robertson, brother, brother of Willie, from the famous Robertson family, featured on the hit TV show Duck Dynasty. 
Jep grew up in the home where the goodness of God and the love of God and the warmth of Christian fellowship were known to him from a very young age. But at around the age of 18, Jep fell in with the wrong crowd, and he gave himself over to alcohol and to drugs, to substances that he increasingly took a hold on his life, and day after day seeking another high, day after day seeking a better high, and his life was going awry quickly. Now, one night, he was at a movie, and he came out of the movie theater and went to his truck, and he found a note on the windshield of his truck. It was from his brother, and the note simply said this, we need to talk. And so Jep made his way over to the family home, and when he walked in, he quickly discovered he had not walked into a conversation, but he'd walked into an intervention. And there in the family living room was his dad and his brothers. And his dad said to him, son, are you ready to change? Son, are you ready to change? With Jep staring at his dad, probably in stunned silence, his dad continued, He said, either you join us now as a family and follow God, or have a nice life, go on your way. Those are your two choices. Which will it be? Now, you hear that, and you might think, you know, man, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? I mean, it's his family. I mean, after all, this is their their son, their brother. Are they, are they really prepared for him to walk? I mean, shouldn't they be a little more tender, a little more patient? Maybe, maybe. But you might also be overlooking the fact that for all of love's tender expressions, sometimes love must be tough. If you really love someone, then there are times when destructive behaviors have to be confronted. If you really love someone, then there are times when detrimental choices have got to be called out because allowing them to drift off to their own peril is not loving. Love, when it is real, sometimes must be tough. That's true in your family, but it's also true in our church family. In the normal course of our life together as a church is going to be characterized by warmth, by encouragement, by agreement, by celebration, by mutual submission, by mutual support and tenderness and joy. The normal course of our life together is going to be like that. But here's the question. What do you do when a professing follower of Jesus Christ decides to engage in activities that are clearly sinful and they're not going to stop? What do you do when they're making choices that are clearly contrary to Scripture? What do you do when somebody who calls themselves a Christian, who's part of your church fellowship, when their lives become marked by a pattern of disobedience to Jesus, when they're openly defiant toward the Lord and unrepentant? What do you do when the followers of Jesus stop following Jesus? That's the question. And that's what Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, pointedly, practically giving us a guide on what we're to do and why. So I would say to you in reading this chapter, I think that probably the most prominent principle, well, let me put it this way, the most prominent principle that emerges to me from this chapter is simply this, that the local church must discipline the unrepentant. The local church must discipline the unrepentant. We're talking about a person who professes to know Jesus, to love Jesus. They're part of the church fellowship. 
when they stop following Jesus and, and won't stop, stop following Jesus, they are unrepentant, hardened, defiant. The church in love must discipline the unrepentant. Where someone is persistently, wantonly continuing in sin, we're called as a church family to confront that and to say, no more, you gotta stop. Gotta, he, look what the Lord says. Look what the Lord says about this. He's spoken to this. You, you, can't, you can't just keep doing this. And as we see in chapter 5, if necessary, may even have to remove them. The local church must discipline the unrepentant. Now, you can see in Corinth what the situation was, right? There's a man in the church. I don't know what role he had. Maybe he maybe headed up a ministry team, or maybe he's just a longtime member. I, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly much about him other than he claimed to be a Christian. He went to the church at Corinth, and he was having sex with his stepmother. And again, all God's people said, ugh, ugh. And Paul says, not only do the scriptures say it's wrong, but even the pagan world around you knows it's wrong. Like even the people that go to church, you'd be like, that, you shouldn't do that. That's not good. That's not right. Yet surprisingly, the, Christian, the, the Christians at Corinth are not calling it out. They're not dealing with it. In fact, in fact, Paul says, Paul says they're arrogant about it. Did you see that, see that in verse 2? And you are arrogant. Like there's some kind of pride here going on. Verse 6, he says that they're boasting. He says, verse 6, notice that. Your boasting is not good. Like they're kind of boasting about the situation. <laughs> Made me scratch my head thinking, what? Were they making posters or something? Or like, what? How are they boasting? Well, I got thinking about it. I'm like, well, I could see them saying, you know, maybe somebody raising up at a members meeting. Uh, excuse me, I don't think that this should be going on. And a faction of the church saying, whoa, whoa, what do you mean, what do you mean? Hey, we're, we're a church, we're, we're a church about, we're our church is all about grace here. We're about acceptance. We're about inclusion. We're about, we're, we're the grace church. I mean, after all, we're, sure, there's sin here, but God's grace abounds where there's sin. Hey, I mean, even Paul said, all things are lawful for us. So why not this? I don't know if that's what they're saying, but as I scratch my head and think about in what ways might they be boasting, it's not hard for me to imagine people saying that because people still talk like that. Sin persisting in the lives of Christians and in church and say, oh, you don't, don't judge me. <laughs> Do you notice how many times the word judge appeared in, that, in this passage, this chapter? Several times. In fact, Paul explicitly says, verse 13 for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? The bad kind of judging that we are down on is the kind of judging where we condemn people with an attitude as though we ourselves have never sinned. It's called hypocrisy, and God hates hypocrisy. But there's a good kind of judging we do where maybe we would use the word discerning. Think of more discerning. We're saying, this isn't right. The Lord has spoken to this. And we can judge, we can discern, we can see that this is directly disobedient to Jesus. You can't keep doing this. That's what we're talking about here. Paul says you shouldn't be proud about this. You shouldn't be boasting about this. You should be ashamed about this. And you should be dealing with it. And in particular, what Paul tells them to do in this circumstance is to remove this person. The principle, though, is clear. The local church must discipline the unrepentant. It's a priority 
It's a priority. Do it. Verse 4, look at it. Look what he says. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, so in other words, when you get together on Sunday, my spirit is present with you, with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You are to boot him out. What boot him? Like, boot him out? What? I mean, tell him he can't take the Lord's Supper with us? What? Tell him he can't serve in the ministry team? He can't play his guitar in the band? He can't? What? Can't hand out bulletins? Can't hand, volunteer in student ministry? No. No. It's a priority. Now, if something is a priority, it's something you get to, right? I'll tell you what's a priority for me in the morning. It's coffee and breakfast. It's a priority. I need breakfast because I won't make it to 10.30 without it. And um, I need coffee because I don't feel like a Christian until I drank it. It doesn't sound very spiritual, but somebody asked me something yesterday, uh, or yesterday the day before, my wife asked me something that involved thinking and calculating, and I'm like, just let me drink this first. It's a priority. I've, I've, I just, it's something that I do. There's a lot of things I don't do in the morning, but those are things that I do. It's a priority. This is a priority here. Paul says, he's like, do not pass go. Do not collect $200. When you get to church on Sunday, you need to deal with this. It's a priority. Also notice, though, it's for a purpose. It's for a purpose, for a redemptive purpose. See that in verse 5, the end of verse 5? That his spirit may be saved. It's not about humiliating him. It's not about making him feel small. It's not about making anybody feel superior. In fact, it should have the opposite effect on all of us. It should have a humbling effect. It's for his good. It's for, his, his, it's for the certainty of his salvation. To give him an opportunity to demonstrate that he really knows Jesus. And if he doesn't, to call it out. I mean, how, how much better to have a, a moment of humiliation in your life than an, e an eternity of hell and damnation because you just, you said a prayer once but never really chose Jesus, never really submitted him, were never really born again. Imagine going to a church that smiles at you and shakes your hand as you make your way to hell. Imagine that. Kind of like, you want to go to a church like that? We would rather you like us and think we like you in the friendly Canadian way than to be sure you know Jesus and to be sure you, you avoid eternal damnation. It's for a purpose. And that's what was going on in the Robertson household that day. What that family was, they didn't want Jep to leave the family. They didn't want that. But things came to a head and things were so desperate and so serious that they realized we've got to do something drastic here. And so they did. Now what I didn't tell you about that story is when Jep's dad Phil said to him, son, are you ready to change? I didn't tell you what happened next. When he was asked that question, Jep answered, I thought you were never going to ask and he fell to his knees and wept. The family came around him and prayed for him, and they put him on a strict program, a Robertson family program, to get him away from this crowd and to get him away from these influences and to get him back on track for the Lord. That's the point. That's what Paul's talking about here. A positive intervention is for a redemptive purpose. It's a priority. It's for a purpose. Third, it involves a process. It involves a process. Paul says in verse 2 that they were to remove this man. 
So I take that to mean that they're to remove him from the membership role and to disallow him from participating with everyone else in the life of the church. I don't know that it means that he could never, ever attend the church, but I am certain it means that he would no longer function as though he's just another member of the church. Things would change. They were to remove him. I would say it's a process because when I look at, the, at other places of Scripture, I can see that when I compare this to Matthew 18 and what Jesus said there, that this is kind of the fourth step in the process that Jesus laid out for us there for church discipline. In fact, I'd just like you to turn there. Keep something in 1 Corinthians 5 because we'll come back to it. But I just want you to see it's another critically important text if we're to understand church discipline where Jesus addresses at Matthew 18 at verse 15. And I show you here there's a, a four-step process that Jesus lays out here. And we see its purpose is redemptive. But it is a process, a progressive process. Verse 18, Matthew, or verse 15, sorry, Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. So it starts with a private rebuke. It's just, just me, right? And Jesus envisions especially a relational sin where somebody has a sin against someone else. And here there's a, there's a one-to-one, a correction. Hey, you know, what, you, what you're doing here is wrong. It's not right. And in this context, you've wronged me. So it's a private rebuke. But verse 16, if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established. You're going to bring one or two others with you just to make sure that we're talking about the facts here. and We're dealing with reality so that things can be established. But if you do not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So it starts with a private rebuke and then it's a plural rebuke. There's more than one person involved. It's not everybody. It's just a small, small number. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now you see it's getting wider, right? As, the resist, as, as unrepentance persists, there's more believers are brought into the picture. Now we've got the church involved. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So this is a, now a public rebuke. So it starts as a, uh, starts as a private rebuke. Then it's a plural rebuke. Now it's a public rebuke. But if he doesn't listen to the church, if he refuses to listen to the church, middle of verse 17, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There's authority. Jesus gives authority to the church to carry out his will. So the fourth step is a purging rebuke. Private, plural, public purging. There's a process. Now, the elephant in the room is if you read that and then you read 1 Corinthians 5, we feel compelled to say, Paul, you need to go back and read read Matthew 18 because there's a process. And Paul just, he just sort of skips over one, two, and three and goes to four. Why does he do that? Here's what I think. Here's my hunch. I think that Paul, seeing the public scandalous nature of this sin, and recognizing and acknowledging 
This isn't something that the people don't know. They know this is wrong. Everybody does. Even their unbelieving teammates and coworkers and neighbors know this is wrong. I think because of the, the scandalous public nature of it and because of the persistence of it, Paul says you need to take swift action and to deal with it. I think that's why. But we do see that even in 1 Corinthians 5, there is a process. You're to come together. You're to deal with this. You're to do it. Most times when we are involved in some kind of discipline in the church, most times, the vast majority of times, we never get to step four. In fact, I would say the vast majority of times, we never get to step three. Oftentimes, by God's grace, we go to steps one and steps two. Loved ones, it's a priority, though. It's a purpose. It involves a, it's a priority. It's for a purpose. It involves a process. Fourthly, it has parameters. The local church must discipline the unrepentant. It has parameters. What I mean by that is, like, it's got boundaries. We, we don't discipline every sin. We disciple through all kinds of sins. But we don't do corrective discipline for every sin. James 3 and 2 says this, we all stumble in many ways. <laughs> yes, that's true. We all stumble in many ways. If we, did corrective sin, if we did corrective discipline for every sin in the church, that's all we'd ever do. In fact, we'd all have just a day on the calendar. Today's my day. It's going to be a long one. See, in Scripture, though, there are parameters. We don't we don't do corrective public discipline for everything. We do it, though, where there is hardened unrepentance. We do it when it's over a period of time where there's unrepentance. We do it when it's publicly known, like it's out there. And we do it when it affects, it impacts upon a core doctrine of the church. And we do it when it, it impacts upon the unity of the church or the testimony of the church. Those are some of the parameters. Let me give you some examples. Romans 16, Paul calls for uh, corrective discipline in situations where there is divisive behavior, where, where somebody is causing division and disunity among the saints, and not for a biblical justifiable reason. 1 Timothy 1, discipline is called for where, some, where there is blasphemy going on. People think, saying things about God as though they are true that are not true, that defame God. 2 Thessalonians 3, discipline is called for where there, people are disobeying and disregarding the biblical authority of church leadership. 2 John is calls for discipline where there is teaching of heresy. 2 Thessalonians 2 calls for discipline where there is laziness. This is a striking one to me. Laziness where somebody is living off the church when really the issue is it's not like they can't work, it's just that they won't. And it's just like, well, this is, this is better. The church is provide for me and I just won't bother. That's vastly different than times of need where the church wants to bless you and encourage you, but where somebody is taking advantage of the church, believers are called to deal with that. Here, 1 Corinthians 5 is where there's open, blatant sexual immorality. So you can see it's like we don't discipline everything, but we discipline some things. Look at verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 5, what Paul says there. He says, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. 
not even to eat with such a one. So you see, Paul's got some parameters here. He names some things. And again, it seems to be where there is the testimony of the church is at stake, where the unity of the church is at stake, where core doctrines are at stake, and where that person is persisting over a period of time in unrepentant sin. We've got to deal with it. We have to deal with it. The local church must discipline the unrepentant. And here's the thing. This is where it gets real serious. When we do that, when we discipline, it is a real spiritual act whereby a person is put in a place spiritually where we, the church, look to God and say, God, you've got to deal with them. You've got to deal with them because we can't. That's what's going on in Corinth. Verse 5, Paul says, you are to deliver this man, listen, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. What in the world does that mean? It's a difficult text, but there are some clues in Scripture, I think, to help us understand what it means. Some Bible students have noted that the language Paul uses here is really similar to what we read in the book of Job in Job's situation. Now, his was much different. Job was a righteous man. He lived for the Lord. He loved the Lord. He wasn't perfect, but he loved the Lord and lived for him. He hadn't done anything wrong. But if you know the story of Job, you know that Satan challenged God to, and said, hey, listen, the reason that Job's all for you is because he's got a good. But you, you, just, you just remove some of your blessings from him. You cause pain and grief in his life, and Job will curse you. Satan challenged God to allow him to test Job, and God said to the devil, Job 2.6, Behold, he is in your hand. Now that sounds not exactly the same, but it sounds really similar to handing over to Satan. Now again, Job, very different. He, again, a righteous man, but the language is similar. Behold, he is in your hand. Similarly, 2 Corinthians 12 and 7, where Paul talks about suffering in his own life, and he recognizes that there is a spiritual source to his physical suffering. He said, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. Listen, a messenger of Satan to to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So God was giving the devil leash to do something in Paul for Paul's good, for God's glory. And the devil of all people was was God's pawn in this to bring it about. Paul was not being punished, but under the sovereign hand of God, Satan was given a leash. I got a dog, and he's on that leash, and he's given room to move. But when it gets to the end of that leash, it's thus far, no further, buddy. And Satan is on a leash. And God is at the other end of it. And the sobering thing about 1 Corinthians 5 is that when a church disciplines in that purging rebuke, it's a spiritual act where we hand that person over, Paul says, to Satan, who's on the end of the leash that God holds, so that God would work in a way that only he can, that we can't to bring about a redemptive outcome. Now, loved ones, if you have the Spirit of God in you, then if you and I read this, we ought to tremble. To tremble. At how serious this subject is. When a church exercises 
discipline according to God's word, I believe that what we're doing is we're doing a lot more than say, you're not welcome here. It's a kind of appeal to God to say, God, you deal with them. And whether God would allow the enemy to wreak havoc on a person's life is up to him and to his wisdom and his will. But it is no light thing to discipline a person who will not turn away from their sin. And it is no light thing to claim you know Jesus and to live in sin. So what does this all mean? What does this look like? Well, I don't think it means that when a person's disciplined, we just ignore them altogether, see them walking down the street, cross the street to the other side. I don't think it means that. I don't think we block their calls, delete them off social media. I don't think it means that. I think, though, what it does mean is that whatever we do in any interactions we have with them, we're not pretending that there isn't a problem. Things are not normal. Things are not okay. There's a serious situation. We don't just hang out like everything's fine. We're not just going to go have coffee and talk about the bills or talk about the weather or talk about our plans for vacation. No, no, we'll get together for coffee, but we're going to talk about Christ and his lordship and where you're going. That's what we're going to do. Whatever interactions that we have, it's with the view of restoring that person to faithfulness to the Lord, gently, lovingly, but firmly, because sometimes love must be what? Tough, sometimes. You'll, be, you'll interact with that person as there's an opportunity, and you'll be pleading with them and warning them and urging them, not hanging out like there's no crisis. It's a tough thing to do, but it's a loving thing to do. And you're not content to let someone deceive themselves into thinking that their holiness doesn't matter. The local church must discipline the unrepentant. Now at this point, I guess there's lots of things that we could say. But I'd be remiss if I didn't point out to you some of the reasoning that Paul gives. The big reason, the big purpose is a redemptive purpose, to restore them unto the Lord. But there's a couple other things here that Paul says, at least three things I identified that Paul says is worth noting. I'll try to do these quickly. The local church must discipline the unrepentant because, one, sin is infectious. Sin is infectious. The whole thing, excuse me, the whole thing about the bread and the lump and all that stuff, he's talking about, talking about how a little bit of sin that's left unchecked in a church is like leaven kneaded into the bread. Again, I don't know anything about baking. Okay? I know about eating bacon. I don't know anything about baking. But my understanding is just a little bit of leaven kneaded into that dough will cause it to rise. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. And the principle he has is just, just a little bit of sin. A man having a sexually immoral relationship with his stepmother. It's just one person. We're a big church. It's one person. What Paul says is, you leave that unchecked. And it will spread in the church. The root of bitterness in one person becomes a point of contention in another. A point of pride in one person becomes a source of envy for someone else. Sin spreads in the church. That's its nature. It's infectious. Second, we need to discipline because holiness is our calling. Sin is infectious. It spreads. But also, holiness is, is our calling. We're called to be holy verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. It's like, I want to be a lumpy church. 
Whatever that means, I want to be a new lump without the leaven of sin. As you really are unleavened. So leaven here represents sin. And Paul says you are unleavened. Not that we are living in sinless perfection, but we live with the forgiveness of sins. And we're counted righteous. So see, this is who we are now. We, we are a holy people set apart under the Lord. Did you know that? That's why Jesus saved you. He saved you so that you would be with him forever. And he also saved you so you'd be like him forever. Did you know that? Peter says that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Listen, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. See, too many, too many people want a Savior who pardons, but not a Savior who purifies. And if you got Jesus, he does both. God did not send his son to die on the cross so you and I could just carry on sinning without worrying about hell. That's, that's not a Christian. A Christian who says to themselves, God will forgive me anyway, doesn't know the Lord. Our testimony is not just words we say, but the power of God shown through us as we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Holiness is our calling. We're called to be like Jesus. And dear brothers and sisters, isn't that what we want? Remember, God works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. I'm getting to know you well enough to know that there's an awful lot of you here that want that. You want to be like Jesus. You want to honor him with your life. We're called to that. That's why we got to deal with sin. Also, discipline, uh, the church was called to discipline the unrepentant also because ignoring sin is unloving. It's unloving toward the sinner. It's unloving toward the church. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. See, it's about love. John says we're to abide in his love. It's about love, loving him and loving that person. We can't be indifferent to a person who might be giving evidence that they actually don't know the Lord. Ignoring sin is unloving if I was driving my car toward a cliff and you knew it was there and you got the impression that I didn't know it was there and you didn't tell me, if I survived the crash, it would reveal to me something about you, that you don't care about me. <laughs> you knew it was there. You said nothing. Oh, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to offend them. Please, please, if my life is heading over the cliff, offend me, please, I beg of you. Because it's not loving to just let me go without trying to stop me. Sin is infectious, holiness is our calling. Ignoring the sin is unloving. That's why we're called to discipline as a church. The local church is called to discipline the unrepentant. Now, before Paul closes off this subject, he does something I think is important for us to do. I kind of have already done it, but I want to make sure that you hear it, because Paul wanted to make sure that the Corinthians heard it. He wanted to make very clear who it is that we discipline. And do you notice that he made that emphasis, verse 9? I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. Right? You, instead, we, we are to take the gospel to them. We are to have relationships with them. 
We are to, 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 to find ways to, to get into people's lives, whether it's, uh, whether it's in, in a public setting or in a personal setting. We, we're called to evangelize and to call people to come to Christ and to find salvation. So you see, church discipline is not, it's not for those outside the church. So there's a sense in which like it's, we're not the moral police of others around us saying, you, you need to clean up your act. No, you need to come to Jesus who will raise you from the dead and then he'll clean up your act. That, that's, that's, what we're, that's what we're about with outside the church. Church discipline is not for those outside the church. Church discipline is only for those inside the church who claim to be believers it's for those who claim to know Christ but aren't living like it and won't change. That's why Paul says, he talks about the one who bears the name brother. But I'm writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister. If he or she is guilty of sexual morality, greed, idolatry, or vile or drunkard swindler. If they're walking in rebellion against the Lord. I think it's important everybody, everybody who calls Harvest home should take note about the importance of belonging to this local church. The membership in the local church really means something. It doesn't just mean your name is on a list. It means that you are identifying with a body of believers, a body of believers who have come by faith alone to Christ for salvation. A body of believers who are adopted, really adopted into God's family and are now part of his forever household. And being part of that family, being part of that kingdom, means that, one, I am accountable. I'm accountable. I am accountable to the saints at Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. Me, I'm talking about me. I'm accountable to you. I'm accountable to you. I'm accountable to the elders here, the under-shepherds. Hebrews 13 and 7 says that they are to be keeping watch over our souls. You want to be an elder, men? Keeping watch over our souls. I, I am accountable, so I am, I'm answerable to the saints in the local church. And I'm also responsible I'm responsible for my brothers and sisters. You are responsible for your brothers and sisters because they're your brothers and sisters. You're responsible with the elders. The members hold each other accountable and call each other to account. You're responsible for them. There's, there's way more shepherding and pastoring in the local church than the shepherds and pastor can do. It's the responsibility of the church. When you are a member of the local church, it means a lot of things, but one thing I wanted to see today, it means that you're responsible for the people in your church. You really are, together with the rest of our church family. And I, I want to ask you this morning a really important question. Are you, willing, are you willing to be accountable to the saints at Harvest Niagara? And are you ready and willing to be responsible for the saints at Harvest Niagara? If you're thinking about making this church your home, you should answer those questions first. Because if you're saying, no, I'm not willing to be accountable to everyone, you're not ready to be a member. If you're saying, I'm not ready to be responsible for anyone else, you're not ready to be a member. And it's not one of those things you can just put off and say, well, that's for the super spiritual. No, that's for the believer. It's for you. <laughs> but that's for another sermon. These are questions that every member needs to ask themselves. Am I willing to be accountable? Am I ready to be responsible? And loved one, brother, sister, if you are a member, you've already said the answer is yes. So what that means is, 
as you're wandering toward the cliff, you should expect that somebody who loves you is going to confront you. You should expect that you'll be called out. And you should expect that if you resist and straight arm and say, no, I'm doing this, I don't care what you say, you should expect that you will find yourself working your way through a Jesus-given process. All the while, saints begging God and begging you to turn back. But you should expect that the church will do something. Because so help us, God, we will. To close my sermon, I want to say two things. Beyond what I've already said, you're like, Ross, you already said a whole lot of things. I know. Remember what I've said. Don't pack up yet, please. Listen carefully. The local church must discipline the unrepentant. It's a priority. It's for a purpose. involves a process. has parameters. You got that? We do it because sin's infectious. Holiness is our calling. And it's, it, ignoring it is unloving. I just, I just want to address, though, maybe two groups of people as I close. I just have in mind, having said all of this stuff, I have in mind a visitor or somebody who's not yet a Christian. And you're hearing this, and you might be just really wrestling with this. Or maybe you're not a visitor. Maybe you are a Christian, and you're wrestling with this. And you're feeling like all this talk of discipline and rebuking and handing over to Satan sounds really ominous and ugly. I don't want you to leave today with a a distorted view of what I'm saying. So let me try to illustrate it to you. One of the things that we're called as Christians is we're called children of God. God is our Father. Parents, do you let your kids do whatever it is they want? No, you don't, do you, right? I'm chilled by the non-response of parents. Do you let your kids do whatever it is they want? It's like, we need to start praying for our kids right now. Do you let your kids do whatever it is they want? And what do you think of parents who do? Like, man, right? We could, that could be a whole other sermon, couldn't it? Loved ones, of course you don't. Why, why do you discipline your children? Why do you say no? Why do you have a curfew? Why, why do you remove privileges? Why do you discipline in ways X, Y, and Z? Because you love them. That's why God does it too. He loves us. A common objection, too, that I hear about Christianity is this, is that the church is full of hypocrites. You probably heard that, too. And I think it's worth acknowledging that sometimes it's true. And the reason it's true is because we're, the church is full of sinners. So, so that's just a reality. So we're not going to hide from that. We're going to pretend from that. Sometimes it is. But sometimes the reason why it's especially true is because the given church doesn't discipline their members. And they are full of hypocrites because they're full of hypocrites. And nobody says, stop. So if you struggle with this, if you wrestle with this, please don't leave today with a distorted view. Struggle and wrestle. But don't leave today saying that's ugly and unkind because it's the opposite. Finally, finally. Brothers, sisters, members, faithful attenders here at Harvest Niagara, Isn't this the kind of church you want to go to? 
this is the kind of church that I want to belong to. That if my life heads toward the cliff, you won't just stand back and watch me. Don't we want to be a church that's authentic? Don't we want to be a church that's real? Like we don't fake it. When there's stink in the room, we deal with it. When there's breakthrough and God at work, we celebrate it. When there's heartbreak and sorrow, we weep with them. When there's rejoicing, we rejoice. But we don't fake it. We don't play games. We love one another. And we're on mission together. Because Jesus is our treasure. He's our passion. He's worth it all. Isn't that the kind of church you want to belong to? Then so help us, God, that we would be that. And part of that involves exercising church discipline. I'm going to close in prayer now. I'm going to ask our new pastor of worship to come. He's going to lead us in a closing song, and then I'm going to come back to you. Father, as we bow before you, we, we feel the weight of this. And Lord, I can see that. I can see there is a real sobriety here in the room. I'm so grateful, Lord, for your people that are just so keen and attentive to your word. They want to hear your word. They want to know your word. And Lord, I'm grateful, grateful for that work of your spirit. But also desiring more, more working of your spirit in me, in my brothers and sisters, Lord, to internalize this, to get this clear, to work it out in our small groups, for our elders to practice it, for staff and leaders to endorse it and be involved in it, for our members to participate as well, as we love one another, as we care for one another. Lord, I pray that we be a church that lives with courage that comes from you and compassion that comes from you, Lord. Give us, Lord, as we minister to one another, a genuine spirit of gentleness, Lord. But also, when necessary, a love that's tough. And I pray, God, this morning, I plead with you, Lord, please, for people living in sin who know better, that you'd stop them, Lord, that you'd restore to them the joy of their salvation and meaningful, sweet fellowship and a life lived on purpose, Lord. I plead with you, please, God. And God forbid that we would wander. Keep us close to you, Lord Jesus, we pray. In your great name.